You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from Yahweh, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle, that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me, you do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and struck down thirty men of the town, and took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to him, 
This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught three hundred foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and to the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Etem, and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No. We will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Remath Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon Yahweh and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die to thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called En-Hekor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 710 of this podcast. Today is Monday, September 11th, 2023. That was Judges 14 to 15 that I just read for you. And Samson is off to a explosive start. Not a wallflower, not a quiet in the land type of guy as you can tell hey i saw a woman and i like her she seems good to me in my own eyes she is right in my eyes 
chapter 14, verse 3 says, and get her for me, he tells his parents. His parents do not approve. They do not like this. And they say, isn't there anybody among your own people? Isn't there anybody in our family, our extended family, you could marry? Which is to say, yes, it was a pretty common thing to marry a probably not so distant cousin as would be typical for us. We would say, oh, that's weird. Why would you marry at all like any kind of a cousin? But even just within your people, right? An Israelite. Marry an Israelite woman. Samson, what are you doing? He's insistent. No, I want her. Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. I want her. And so they do, right? They relent. And actually, interestingly, this is something God is using, which isn't to say that this is the ideal or that this is so commendable for Samson, but then God is using who Samson is to accomplish God's purposes. And also, this is indicative of what has gotten Israel into trouble. It's not just the idolatry. It's also the intermarrying with the people of Canaan, these other nations that God was driving out. And if you'll recall a while back, God said, they're going to be a thorn in your side. You didn't drive out these nations that I told you to drive out. Okay, then I'm not going to drive them out either. And they're just going to live among you. And you're going to intermarry with them. And you're going to regret this, but you're going to get the consequences of your own folly as things play out. I tried to tell you, you wouldn't listen. Okay. So now you just get the consequences. Samson being interested in this Philistine woman, he is going to get the consequences, but then so are the Philistines. God is going to use this to basically create a pretext that is obvious, a case study, a certain precedent and an object lesson for the Israelites and for the Philistines, and even for us too, so many thousands of years later, to look back on, where Samson comes up with a riddle. He is going to throw out this riddle to the 30 companions who are Philistines, celebrating with him this wedding to one of their women. If they can answer the riddle, then he will give them 30 changes of clothing. And if they can't answer the riddle, they will give him 30 changes of clothing. And notice how quickly it escalates. It's all fun and hospitable and everybody's having a good time. It's a party, right? It's party time. But then they don't know the answer to the riddle. And so they do what? They don't sit down, figure it out. They don't resign themselves to, okay, it looks like we're going to have to pay up. No, no. They come up with a workaround where they're going to get to Samson through his wife. And this is, oh, by the way, part of the reason why it should be men who are involved in politics and not the women, because things like this happen. There was a deal, there was an arrangement, and now one side wants out of the arrangement. They want out of the consequences of the deal. And so what do they do? They go after the vulnerable women and threaten them because women are smaller. Women are weaker. They just are. And that's not to say that we should prey on women. That's to say we should protect women from being threatened like this woman is threatened. And ultimately, she's killed along with her father 
These men are not making idle threats. They are fully capable of burning down her father's house with her and her father inside, and they do. But first, they apply pressure to get an answer to the riddle that Samson has posed. And the woman, just pay attention to how the woman relates to Samson. She does it in a very manipulative way, but not in an honest way. She's not being honest with him and saying, hey, listen, my people have threatened to kill me and my father if they can't answer this riddle. If I don't give them this victory over you, she doesn't do that. She says, oh, you hate me. You don't love me. You hate me, which is very, very manipulative. And it works. Samson, with all of his strength, either is a hapless dupe and falls for it, or he knows that this is all very manipulative and very unfair, very unreasonable. And he springs the trap anyways and tells her what it is. Here's the answer to the riddle. Well, now, no sooner has he told her when all of a sudden these companions change their tone. Instead of being angry, sullen, probably not a whole lot of fun to party with anymore when they couldn't figure out the riddle. Now that they know the riddle, they're like, hey, what is sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? You did not come up with that answer on your own. You cheated. And I'll show you. And so what does Samson do? He goes and he raids the Philistines in another place and takes their stuff. And that's how he's going to pay the Philistines is he's going to raid the Philistines to pay the Philistines. Yeah, you thought you had one over on me. I'll show you. And then these guys, they're so angry about it that they go and they do the thing to Samson's new bride and her father. She kept up her part of the bargain and they killed her anyways, because these are treacherous, dishonest, brutal men. And so then Samson is really provoked. But then something else has happened in the meantime. Samson is so angry after having been duped, his new bride, and his parents did warn him after all, his new bride manipulates him to get the answer to the riddle. Then she tells it to these men. And so they're able to win. They're able to get a victory over Samson. What a terrible way to start a marriage, by the way. Don't be like Samson here. Don't be like his Philistine bride here. Don't do it. You want to be happily married? This is not the way to do it. Betraying the other person to try and prove your quality to worthless guys, lawless men. Yeah, bad deal. Bad idea. But then the woman's father, after Samson storms off, he's out. He's going to go home, sulk. The woman's father gives his daughter to the best man at the wedding. Oh, I thought you hated her. I thought you were done with her. Well, what's curious about that is if Samson didn't say, I am done with her and I'm divorcing her already, then you probably should have verified that. But this is easy divorce. Married and divorced just like that. And now she is given to some other man. And yet Samson, having taken vengeance, leads the Philistines to saying, okay, well, we know how to get back at Samson. Even though he hated this woman, who cares? Whatever, right? It's just chaos. It's bedlam. They're going to kill this woman and her father, burn the house down around them. And now Samson 
is caught in this whirlwind of betrayal, treachery, dishonesty, and he avenges himself on the Philistines even harder. Oh, you think you're going to do that? We'll see about it. (laughs) We'll see about it. He is not going to be taking this lying down. He's not going to just let it go. So what does he do? He catches 300 foxes. That takes a a while. That, (laughs) That takes a minute. You don't do that in an afternoon. We're talking plotting revenge for a good long time. Unless somebody just happens to have a fox farm. They raise foxes for fur. But it doesn't appear so. It says Samson went and caught 300 foxes. I think that probably takes some time. That probably takes a few weeks, maybe a few months. He catches foxes and he ties their tails together and he ties or fastens torches to their tails and sends them in pairs running through the fields to burn the grain of the Philistines. So he's working alone. And what's interesting about using foxes too is you don't have to, for one, talk a whole bunch of your own countrymen who perhaps would be just a whole bunch of chickens about it, cowards not willing to help you with it. You don't have to talk them into helping you. But for another thing, you can stay well back. Nobody's going to catch you actually holding the torch and lighting the standing grain, the fields on fire. No, you set these foxes up and you let them loose and they'll do the rest. And then you fall back, fall back and just watch it burn. Then the Philistines know that it's Samson. Even so, the Philistines know that it is Samson and they are going to get back at Israel now. So if they can't get their hands on Samson, they're going to get back at Israel. And that's a continuation of if they can't get their hands on Samson, they're going to get back at his new bride and her father. That's how they'll get at him. They attack what is important to him, what's dear to him. So then you've got 3,000 men of Judah who get it together and what? They're going to join Samson to fight against the Philistines? No, 3,000 men apparently have a lot of fear even when it comes to how they relate to Samson. They're going to travel in numbers, safety in numbers, in confronting him. And their big question to him in chapter 15 is, don't you know the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is it that you have done to us? And notice that too. Interestingly, no will when they have a standing army of 3,000 men, no will to go and fight against the Philistines and deliver themselves from over four decades of Philistine rule and oppression. No, no, no. 3,000 Israelites are going to take Samson to the Philistines and give the Philistines what they want. Here is some pacifism for you. They're upset with Samson for having stood up to and opposed and struck a blow against the Philistines. How dare you? And rather than looking at this as the beginning of God delivering his people from the Philistines, they take it personally. They're like, oh, you've done this to us. And it's very reminiscent of the kind of thing that Samson's Philistine wife said to him. You don't love me. You hate me. That's why you haven't told me this riddle. Why? Because everything is driven by results. Everything comes down to what do the Philistines want? That's what they get. So the Philistines are not good people, if you haven't noticed. They're not good people. But then what is sick and twisted about it is that the Israelites 
have rationalized that whatever the Philistines want, they get. That is our definition of right and wrong. It's very pragmatic. Here's how this works. We don't upset the Philistines. They are rulers over us. We've just come to accept that that is what it is. And you have broken the cardinal rule, which is don't upset the Philistines. And so they're here to bind Samson and take Samson to the Philistines. And Samson says, I'll give myself over to you if you don't attack me yourself. Don't don't attack me yourself. Give me to the Philistine. Promise? Yes, we, we promise. We're not going to hurt you. We won't kill you. We will give you to the Philistines. So they tie him up. They tie him up and they take Samson to the Philistines. And the Philistines, man, they are just triumphant, jubilant. They come shouting as they are going to meet Samson and to take Samson into their possession. And definitely they're going to torture him and humiliate him. They're going to do all manner of things to Samson, just like he humiliated them and harmed them. They will make an example out of Samson for everybody to see and for some good sport. Sure, in the meantime. But then it says that the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon Samson and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. So here he is, here he is, just about to be handed over, and he breaks the ropes, which are basically useless because he's very, very strong, the Samson guy. God has blessed him with extraordinary strength, and he breaks the ropes and reaches for whatever could be used as a weapon. Oh, a fresh jawbone of a donkey? That'll do. Anything will do. Anything can be a weapon in the hands of a willing warrior. Samson just happens to find a fresh jawbone. And then it says that he struck a thousand men. And that is to say, he didn't just hit them. He killed them. He killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. But then he's very thirsty, right? And you're like, man, what kind of a story is this? This is in the Bible. Yes, this is in the Bible. And it's great. It's great that this is in there because this is where people get to when they do whatever is right in their own eyes. This is where God's people get to when They go worshiping other gods and they forsake the Lord their God. Samson is not who you are probably raising your sons to be. You don't probably say, oh, Samson, you should be like Samson. Probably not. Maybe some of you, maybe, but probably not. And so we've got thirsty Samson praying to God, asking God, calling on God to not let him die of thirst. So he kills a thousand Philistine men with the jawbone of a donkey, and then he's very thirsty. So he's not going to die at the hands of the Philistines, but he might die of thirst afterwards because, man, that's a lot of work. Lord, I need some electrolytes. I need some Gatorade. I need some water. I need, I need something or I'm going to die. Please don't let me die and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. And God listens and gives Samson water from a rock. And then it says he judged Israel 20 years. So this is not from the day of his birth until he's 20 years old. This is probably, I would guess, Samson being a young adult, maybe late teens, mid-20s, if he judges Israel for 20 years, at the close of chapter 15, he's probably middle-aged. He's probably 
in his 40s. But that is to say, he's a young man being a young man, seeing some cute girl, some hot girl. I don't care if she's a Philistine. She's hot. Man, look at that face. Look at that body. She is the one I want. Mom, dad, get her for me for a wife. She seems right in my eyes. But then that phrase, ooh, watch out, right? That phrase is indicative of how the Israelites have come to be in the situation that they're in. They do what is right in their own eyes. There is no king in Israel, and so every man does what is right in his own eyes or marries, in this case, whoever is right in his own eyes. And God is going to work all these things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But that isn't to say that the things themselves that are happening are all to the credit of those involved who are being used and utilized by God. That can be a hard thing to understand, but the only real hero in all of this is God. And you have to approach these kinds of stories with an understanding that the human agents are flawed. They are very human. And that's part of the reason why we're given some of these details so that you understand these are real people, flawed people at best, depending on calling on God. You're a flawed person and maybe part of the practical application here is you're a flawed person and if you're relying on God, that doesn't mean you just wait until you're perfect, until you would execute perfectly without any hiccups, without any hangups, without any mistakes. That's also how Israel has gotten into this pickle. They wait until it seems right in their eyes, but wait a second. What if you did the good thing when it's right in God's eyes? Hmm? Do you think about that? As we will get into in the next chapter, you've got Samson and Delilah. It's not over yet. The story of Samson is not over yet. Did you hear him having died and been buried in some place like the judges before him? No. He judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, 20 years. And then what, right? Chapter 16, did he stop judging Israel and decide to do something different? We'll get into it. We'll find out. But for right now, I would propose to you this is a sobering, cautionary, thought-provoking, and fascinating anecdote. This is a fascinating character sketch, not just of Samson, but of Israel at this time, what men are like in Israel, how fathers and mothers relate to their sons who want wives. This is a fascinating character sketch for God. Who is God in all of this? Has God changed? No. Will he use someone like a Samson in these kinds of circumstances to accomplish his purposes? You bet he will. You bet. Let's do get into some current events items, though. It seems to me a good time to share with you some discussion of the role that women play in society and how women see themselves and how women relate to men. It seems good to me, having just talked about not just Samson, but also the woman, right? The woman who is his first wife, the Philistine woman, who's not named. It seems good to me to talk about how women can be like that and how it's not okay. Samson gets the lion's share, no pun intended, of the criticism when we in our day talk about the Old Testament judges is a cautionary tale. We just say, wow, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. 
And that's an argument for there being authority and you listening to those who are in authority in your family. Listen to your parents, young people, when it comes to who you are interested in getting into a romantic relationship with, who you are assessing as right in your eyes, but your parents may warn you, oh, what about this? What about that? Samson here is a cautionary tale, particularly to young men, but also to young women. Don't be unequally yoked with a non-believer, with somebody who worships other gods or doesn't worship God, who doesn't love Christ. They're not a Christian. But very often, Samson gets a lot of the criticism. He doesn't get quite so much credit. Begrudgingly, we give him credit for being a judge and doing the right thing at the last. And yes, there's a lot to criticize in Samson, no doubt. But what about the woman? (laughs) What about this woman who manipulates him and toys with him and preys on his emotions? Oh, you don't love me. You hate me. You hate me because you have embarrassed and humiliated my people, the Philistines. Never mind that she's willing to humiliate her new husband. No, no. She's only thinking of herself. She's thinking very short term. And she's willing to, in a pinch, deploy her charms and, yes, even by extension, implied, withhold herself from her husband. What are they probably not doing as newlyweds? You and I both know when she says, you hate me, it is not a time for love and celebration anymore. That time is over. Once she says, you don't love me, you hate me. So you're going to do what I want you to do. You're going to tell me what I want to know that I'm going to just go and share with these Philistines who rule over Israel. That's the way the pecking order works. Know your place, Israelite man. Yeah, sure. My parents were willing to consent. I was willing to consent to marry you, but I was really marrying below my station, essentially. If you want to prove that you are worthy of my hand and my love and my affection, you're going to tell me what I want to know. In other words, she is presenting herself as this high-valued woman who Samson has insulted. She's not just saying he has humiliated her people. She's saying he has humiliated her, but she's going to twist it all around to him being the one who's in the wrong here. It was a pretty even wager, and those 30 men, they didn't have to agree to the wager. They chose to. 30 against one, 30 minds working to solve this riddle, and they couldn't do it, and they gave up on doing it, but what they could do is they could threaten a woman. And then in turn, that woman doesn't say, hey, please protect me. Please protect my father. These men have threatened us. She doesn't do that. No, she turns on the charms. She turns up the manipulation and really she's leveraging the fact that she is his new bride that he wanted so much. She's going to withhold herself from him unless he gives her complete power over him. Here, I'm going to play for you two clips, two audio clips from a post by Holly Ash over at Not The Bee. This lady absolutely nails how feminism has glamorized every poor choice, lays out what makes a real high-value woman. I'll play one clip, and then I've got some comments, and then I'll play the other clip. But here it is, cut one. Take a listen. 
the rise of online dating and the rise of feminism has taught women that they are not to blame for any poor choices. Every poor choice is glamorized. So if you want to be a sex worker, it's great. If you want to post in bikini pictures online, it's fine. If you want to be in with it, every poor choice is glamorized and every internal reflection is seen as gaslighting yourself. So they've even got terms for internal reflection to prevent it happening. And so what will happen is they are trained to not reflect on themselves because we've been told we've been oppressed for so many years. Now it's time to make sure we project. And so we don't take any accountability. And as a result, when we get into relationships, if we don't feel completely soothed all the time, he must be a narcissist. He must be a manipulator. He must be gaslighting. He, 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 rather than I, I, I. And unfortunately, we've got an online market that caters to that wounded woman, that caters to that entitled woman and caters to that narcissistic woman. Yes. <laughs> no lies detected at censored men on Twitter has as a caption, no lies detected. This is Sajah Khan, Holly Ash says. She's apparently a relationship psychologist. But what she says here about women having been told everything they do that works out, they get credit for, and everything that goes poorly or that makes them unhappy, it is the fault of society. It's the fault of the patriarchy. It's the fault of men either for giving them attention that they didn't want or for not giving them the attention that they did want and which men are supposed to be giving all of these supposedly high-valued women attention. Well, whichever men, those women want to give them the attention, but then <laughs> it's backwards. If the men, by God's design, are the ones who are supposed to be initiating and they're also supposed to be the ones who, if it worked out, if you did end up getting married, they would be the ones who were overseeing and managing the household. Yes, you as a woman, if you're a wife, if you're a mother, you should be managing the household, but then you're managing the household in submission to your husband, if you're a Christian, as your husband is overarching, providing management and oversight and direction you submit to your husband. All of that has been thrown out the window wholesale. There's a wholesale rejection of all of that as oppressive and dehumanizing and sexist and misogynistic. And what do we get instead? We get women being oppressed by themselves. If they're lonely, if nobody wants to be with them, or men just come and go and don't commit to them, they're being oppressed. But then if a man were to say, I am interested in you committing to me and I will commit to providing for you, protecting you, then the woman all of a sudden is going to dictate the terms and say to the man, here's what I'm worth. I know my value. And meanwhile, she will, with impunity, list off all of the things that he must be in order to be worthy of her. But then if he says, you know what, I'm not sold on this. I'm not thrilled about that. I don't like this. I'd like you to adjust that. Well, then he is controlling or he is terrible. He is being narcissistic. If she senses any disapproval at all from him for anything she would do or say or be, he's the one who's being narcissistic, but it's all projection. And then meanwhile, as Sajah Khan is pointing out, I think she's quite right. Women are being told if you start to assess and evaluate whether some of your attitudes, your sensibilities, your behaviors are good. And if you're finding out that they're not all good, 
a whole lot of chatter, a whole lot of noise is there waiting in the wings to tell you, you don't need no man. Forget him. You can do better. Move on. So the men who will, and this is what I've observed, the men who will say to such a woman, this is ridiculous. I don't need this. You're being ridiculous. You're being unreasonable. You're not respecting me. You're not valuing me. How dare he, right? He's making it all about himself. But all while it's projection and it can be projection on both sides. But then because we've embraced this idea of the atomized individual, we no longer have, say, for instance, like in the story of judges, parents who go to kind of scope out, oh, you're interested in this young woman, son? Yeah, we'll talk with her parents and kind of see how she relates to her family, how her family dynamic is, what do they believe is good and true? Is that compatible with how we raised you? Or is there going to be a lot of conflict because she worships other gods? She doesn't worship our God. We are Christians. She's not a Christian. How's that going to work? Let's scope that out. No, 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 no. In our culture, since the Industrial Revolution, no longer do you have strong extended families that help to play matchmaker. It's the individual who is supposed to go out and mingle with others in their generation, party it up. Usually there's drinking involved and loud music and superficiality and being dependent on the good opinions of our peers. And no, that's not oppressive. Nope, nope, nope. But if you were to rely on the opinions of your extended family or your parents to help guide who you will be interested in and how you will pursue the other person, the woman, men, you should be the ones pursuing. That's oppressive. Because of the industrial revolution, we have the breakdown of the extended family as a meaningful arbiter and go-between and mediator for these kinds of things, a filter for these kinds of things. But we also have the breakdown of the role of the father and the mother in the lives of young adults in making the arrangements. Mom and dad are brought in after the fact, after Samson or the equivalent of Samson finds a young woman who is right in his eyes. They're brought in and they're told, like Samson tells his parents, get her for me. Now, wait a second. If you're telling your parents, get her for me, you're just kind of applying a veneer of traditional values here. But let's be honest, you're the one driving this and you won't take no for an answer. And so it's a farce. It's a farce that you would have your parents go and make arrangements. You're wanting a rubber stamp. And that's actually, interestingly enough, what a lot of these young women want as well. They want a rubber stamp. They want a man to open the door for them, maybe when they feel like that would be a value. They want a man to pay for dinner. They want a man to tell them how beautiful they are and to buy them expensive gifts and to commit to them. But then the women want to leave all options on the table to end the relationship if ever they don't feel that their needs are being met. So they're told and they tell themselves that they are queens and that they rule the world and that everything they do and say and are is quite correct. They are high value. But the men, right? The men, if they assert any kind of a self-confident, hey, this is what I want out of life, I'm working hard, say, for instance, to build up the capacity to provide for a wife and children. 
Oh, they're too career-centric. And have you noticed, the villain in Hallmark films is almost always a guy who is telling the woman in question, who he's with at the beginning of the film, here's what we're going to do. The hero of the story, the wish fulfillment, idealized, perfect man, is always working part-time and then the rest of his week, he is making jewelry and furniture and all of the dreams come true for the woman who is trying to weigh and measure, does she want to go back to the big city and continue on with her engagement to some career-driven man? How does he have his own custom-made home on his own 10 acres of land? How does he get by working at the coffee shop and building furniture on the side and spending his whole week trying to pamper this woman? He's just independently wealthy, it would seem. And very affirming, right? Very comforting, very flattering to her, but he wields no authority because that's the ideal. The ideal is a man who's going to give the woman everything she wants, keep her happy, and flatter her. But what is that, right? That is women being conditioned to have unrealistic expectations and to think that everything revolves around them. That is flattering women and telling them, That they can't be narcissistic, but if the man disagrees with, criticizes anything, tries to direct what she's going to be doing and being about, what they would be doing together if they got married, he's the narcissist. It's projection. It's projection. So I'm going to play for you cut two here, the next clip of Sajid Khan talking through these things. Here it is. Take a listen, and then I'll have some more thoughts for you. Narcissified as a high-value woman is actually truly a narcissistic woman. And when you select a woman who enjo- enjoys um, explosive kind of attention from men, you're selecting a woman who will never be satisfied with you. Uh. Selecting a woman who relies on external validation for self-esteem. And that will never go in that woman. What you really should be looking at is a woman who has intrinsic values. And now these are things like how connected I am to my friends and family. How much do I serve my community? How much can I look after you and your well-being? How much self-esteem do I derive from having a purpose and loving those around me? Unfortunately, they look at what is packaged the best way. And that woman is, unfortunately, she's unattainable because she's emotionally broken. To require that much validation can't be healthy. All right. Consider with me what the Apostle Peter writes in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, having to do with wives and husbands. In that order, ladies first. Likewise, wives, Peter writes, be subject. So here we have in view authority. Don't marry a man you can't submit yourself to. Don't marry a man you can't subject yourself to and you wouldn't trust with authority over you. Don't do it. But if you marry a man... Be subject to your own husbands, Peter says. Not every man. No, no, no. You're not to subject yourself to every man in the world. That's not good. That's not healthy. That's extraordinarily dangerous. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, that is, speaking of husbands, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, 
but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, here we have actually a kind of inversion of how much time, how much attention we in our day devote to correcting and instructing wives on the one hand and husbands on the other hand. In our day, what I have observed, and I've seen this all over America in churches that I've been in, when these topics come up, I've seen it everywhere in the literature, in the podcasts and the YouTube videos and the shorts from mainstream evangelical Christian thought leaders, authors, pastors. It's everywhere that we invert this. Peter devotes verses one through six to addressing the women. And he devotes one verse, verse seven, to the men. That is a ratio of six to one correction to the women, direction for the women. In our day, it's six to one correction and qualifying to death the authority and the responsibility and the privilege that men have over their wives, qualifying that to death to where at the end of it, the man only has authority if he runs the gauntlet, if he makes it through the obstacle course in one piece. Think Mario. When Mario is training to fight Bowser, and it's actually Princess Peach who's training him, which I'm not thrilled about. Why? Where did this become the thing? How is it that Peach's is, that that's the song that Bowser sings. He's just obsessed with Princess Peach. And Mario is going to prove that he is essentially the stand-in for the Hallmark Channel idealized male suitor. He's going to be taught by Peach, Princess Peach, how to fight because he's an incompetent fighter. He's just totally incompetent. But he's got gumption, right? He's got the will. Where there's a will, there's a way. He's going to run the obstacle course again and again and again and again until he gets it. Now he's ready, right? Now he's ready because he listened to the woman's needs. She is this great fighter, heroic leader of her people. That is a picture of what the church has spiritualized, rationalized, and done because this is what is right in our eyes. We come to 1 Peter 3, and even though it's six verses addressing the women, one verse addressing the men, we're going to spend 90% of the time correcting the men and 10% of the time saying, and if a man does all of that, then we will expect you to keep up with what Peter is saying to the women. But what does Peter say? He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, so that is to say, even if some of your husbands, they're not doing what they should be doing, they're not being obedient themselves to Christ, they're going to be won over by your feminine influence, your feminine example. This is the exact opposite of what Samson's 
first wife relates to him like, oh, you hate me. You don't love me. No, that's not what Peter says. Wives should be saying to their husbands, God didn't put you in his life to manipulate him, to bully him, to threaten to leave him and divorce him if he doesn't stop playing that music. God didn't put you women in the lives of your husbands so that you could humiliate him until he becomes the man you believe God has called him to be. No, no. How about you be the woman that God has called you to be and you will win him over, Peter says, by your own conduct, your own attitude. Now, what's interesting, verse three, do not let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Some people take this and they go too far and they say, oh, a woman taking time to do her hair or wearing any jewelry whatsoever or wearing expensive clothing, that is totally inappropriate, totally wrong. No, no. What Peter's getting at is not that women should just have bedhead all day and walk around in sweatpants and a t-shirt. That's not what he's getting at. Because actually that wouldn't be in keeping with the adorning of the hidden person of the heart. And Peter is definitely not saying you shouldn't wear clothing any more than he's saying you shouldn't braid your hair, you shouldn't wear jewelry, shouldn't look feminine and beautiful. Peter is not advocating for women to just walk around with nothing on. But why you braid your hair, why you put on that jewelry, why you want the latest fashions so that people will say, wow, look at her, look at her, look at her. If you're wearing what you're wearing and presenting yourself in such a way as to get men to vie for your attention so as to apply pressure and to get what you want, that's not godliness. That's not you being subject to your own husband. If you're always teasing that, you know, you could do better. That guy is giving me attention right now. That's not what God wants you to be like. He's not wanting that to be at all how you inspire or provoke or manipulate your husband to be who he should be. You want to be who you should be, women, and let that bring him to a place of conviction that he should be who he's supposed to be. And I'm just not going to qualify it to death. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to qualify this to death because Peter gives enough qualification for what the husband's side of these responsibilities is supposed to be. Likewise, and that's interesting, what does likewise mean? It means just like I gave this direction to wives to be subject to their own husbands, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that you're flattering her, you're always catering to her every will and whim. That doesn't mean that you become this empty vessel for her self-actualization. You just rubber stamp everything she wants, everything she says, everything she is. No, live with your wives in an understanding way would seem to indicate you see her strengths and you affirm those and you also see her weaknesses and you're trying to provide and protect holistically. You're trying to guard her heart just like you would guard your own heart. You love her as you love yourself. Your loving her is part of how you are preserving yourself and building yourself up. Why would you be harsh to her when she's your wife? You're tearing yourself down when you tear her down. Show honor to her as what? As the one who can do no wrong? As the one who can do everything you can do but better? In less time, more efficiently, with more maturity? 
Is that what Peter says? No, no, no. Showing honor to her as the weaker vessel, which is to say she's more fragile than you are. You're more durable. And no, that should not mean that we say to the men, yeah, rub some dirt in it. If you're being disrespected, if you're being treated rudely, if you're being manipulated, if you're being betrayed by your wife, she's the weaker vessel. You just need to suffer like Christ. You know what? Christ commanded and wielded authority and didn't just wash feet. Have some previous generations forgotten entirely that Christ ever washed his disciples' feet? Yes. Have some forgotten that Christ ever wept? Jesus wept at being confronted by Lazarus's sisters who were confused and angry and hurting? Have some forgotten that it's okay for you to cry as a man? Yes. But are some now taking that so far as to emasculate men, to castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful? Also, yes. Very yes. It's partiality and it's flattery. And it's not actually encouraging men to live with their wives in an understanding way. If you are living with your wife in an understanding way, You understand that she is not perfect and you love her anyways. You don't affirm when she's wrong about something to flatter her, to keep her self-esteem at 100% all the time. No, when she's mistaken about something, you politely, gently, kindly, lovingly, but yes, sometimes firmly say, no, that's not correct. No, I don't think so. But then on the other hand, if she's making some excellent points and she's saying, well, have we considered this? And what about that? And we could do this to live with her in an understanding way means you're going to say, yes, that that's a good point. Let's think about that. Let's try it. Or let's keep that in mind. Let's do the thing that I'm thinking of us doing. And I'll modify my plan based on what you just said. And let's try it. And then let's keep it in mind that we could do this other thing as well, or in addition to, or after, or if this doesn't work out. Peter says they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And of course, this is speaking to Christians. And so this is true if the man and his wife are both alike saints. That's the reason they would be reading this letter from Peter. They're both alike Christians. But this is so counterintuitive compared with how so many of us have been conditioned by what plays on the radio or on our Spotify playlist, how women are portrayed very often in movies or on TV shows, how women are portrayed in literature. The women must be put on a pedestal as atomized individuals. But then what that ends up meaning is they're not subject to their husbands if they're married. And as soon as they grow discontented with their husband because he's not meeting their needs, and by this they mean emotional needs, more often than not, then the majority of cases, the women are the ones who divorce the men and can take half of all that he has materially, financially, can destroy his reputation because we automatically take the side of the woman in far too many cases. What would be much better is to do these things the way that God tells us to do them, to not just do whatever is right in our own eyes and not just do whatever everybody else is doing. If 30 men are applying pressure to a woman to find out the answer to this riddle or else we're going to burn your house down with you and your father both inside, that does not change what is right to do. And you have to wonder what would have happened if Samson's wife, his new bride, would have told him, hey, this is what I was just threatened with. In all probability, Samson would have 
right then and there settled up with those 30 men. And that would have been that. And maybe then it would have escalated in a different direction and the Lord would have used that still to bring the conflict to a head between Samson and the Philistines and to deliver the Israelites from the rule of the Philistines. But such as it was, Samson got played. And that is not okay. To live with your wife in an understanding way does not mean that if she's being manipulative, if she's being vain, if she's encouraging the attentions and interest of other men who are not you, that doesn't mean that you just say, oh yeah, whatever, right? I don't want to be a jealous husband. No, protect your wife, provide for your wife, lead your wife, love your wife in an understanding way, live with your wife. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. So that means you don't just act so aloof that, ah, whatever, right? I can't even, it's too risky. No, 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 no. Have courage. Have the courage to do what God has called you to do and put you in a position to do here. Don't be faithless. Don't be negligent. Also, it means don't be harsh. There can be a harshness that interferes with your prayers, it says, being heard by God. God's going to just tune you out. When you're not living with your wife in an understanding way, well, then maybe God just doesn't pay attention to you like you're not paying attention to your wife. Just like she might be communicating that she has certain needs that are appropriate and legitimate, and you're supposed to provide and protect, give direction, give affection. When you go to God asking for all those kinds of things, you may reap what you sow. And yet, we can't just pile on the men. And that's what's been happening far too often. We pile on the men. We make this all the man's fault. If it goes badly, it's always the man's fault. All the while, we're flattering the women or we're just silently implying that everything they think about themselves and the world and what they should expect is quite correct when that's not the case. If a woman has intelligence and beauty, if she has strength of mind and is taken seriously, if she gets attention and people listen to her and they do what she says, that doesn't mean that she's meant for bigger and better things than getting married, helping her husband to build up a household, loving her husband, loving her children, subjecting herself to her husband. It actually might show quite a lot of strength of character for her to have a lot of value, a lot of worth, a lot of intelligence, and to subject herself to her husband. Not because she doesn't have anything to bring to the table, but because she does have so much to bring to the table. And this is going to please God, it says, that she would have a gentle and quiet spirit, which doesn't mean she doesn't have her own mind. doesn't mean she doesn't roll up her sleeves and get to work and get things accomplished. It doesn't mean she's incompetent or incapable, but it means she can be capable and competent and she devotes that competence, that quality in the days of her youth all the more when her strength is the most full, when she's most beautiful, when she's most energetic, she devotes all that to serving God, to loving God. And because she loves God, because she serves God, and because Paul says every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband, she's devoting that strength and that beauty and that wisdom to building up her husband, edifying her husband, loving her husband, respecting her husband. You can't tell me that that is common today because it's not. But here's the thing that I find. I find that even among conservative Christians who say, we do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, there is 
some shifting uncomfortably in seats when you say, okay, but who is teaching? Who's having authority? And are we being consistent? I mean, look at the SBC, look at all of the kerfuffle surrounding Rick Warren and the kinds of claims that were made by Rick Warren and the Saddleback Church crowd at the Southern Baptist Convention over their ordination of women. They just flat out ordained some women. They said, yep, we're recognizing these women as pastors. They have gifts. They have abilities. We're doing it. They didn't observe what had been agreed to by the SBC. But then more importantly than that, they didn't observe what Paul the Apostle and the totality of the whole counsel of God give us in the way of example and command. We're given exhortations, we're given warnings, we're given cautionary tales, and we're also told that there is a good design that God has for authority that is wielded in the home and in the church, and yes, also by extension, broader society. He who is faithful with a little will be entrusted with more. And yet, what would we say? We would say, when that principle is applied in a lot of our contexts, we give teaching authority to women. And then we say, hey, they're pretty good at this. And then when the men quiet down, we criticize the men for not having said more. But then all the while, we've said to the women, yep, we're going to give you not just equal time, to teach or to have authority in many cases, we're going to actually say that your views, your input cannot be challenged, cannot be debated, cannot be disagreed with because we're going to say that that would be disrespectful. So the same trend that's showing itself in online dating or the TikTok videos that are viral influencers like Emily Ratajkowski speaking to getting divorced before the age of 30, and it's just great, and never mind what you did to the man (laughs) you were married to, never mind what your responsibility would be before God to be faithful as a wife. No, no, you're still hot. What do you mean you're still hot? Well, you're still sexually interesting to men. So you got divorced, and now you're going to brag about it for everybody in the world, all your followers and anybody else who hears about this secondhand. You're going to brag about how it's great, right? You're still sexually interesting. You can go party. You can go have fun. You can be all about yourself. You can go and encourage the interest of other men who are not your husbands and who you, even if you were married to, wouldn't have any special devotion to. It's faithlessness. But then if you criticize it, now you're being sexist. Now you're disrespecting women. Now you're being a misogynist. Now in the church, this looks a bit different, but it's not different enough. And there's an uncomfortability that is very similar to, and I think it's a holdover, I think it's a remnant of, a leftover residue from the seeker-friendly movement, which says, you know, we've got a lot of people who don't all agree in our churches about the role of men and women in the family, in the home, in the church, in society. They don't all agree, and we don't want to offend. We, we don't want to offend, and so we're going to be together for the gospel and put all that stuff aside because we don't want to make waves. We don't want to upset people and distract from the main mission, which is the gospel. Wait a second. The gospel includes but is not limited to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Never, not once, did Jesus disrespect women or tell his followers to disrespect women. But then the way that the radical feminists and the egalitarians 
have spun everything, you are disrespecting a woman if you say, no, that's not correct. No, I'm going to disagree with you there. No, we should not do that. Actually, that's not sound. Actually, that's not a good thing. Even, (laughs) actually, at the most basic level, to agree with the Apostle Paul would have you shunned, ostracized, probably removed from various positions of authority and influence in most American churches, if you were to agree with the Apostle Paul, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Rather, women are to keep silent as in all the churches. We have no other practice. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice. That's what Paul says. If you say it, you will be cast out. Because it's not just with the patriarchs in the Old Testament who had multiple wives that we find fault. We also find fault with someone who was unmarried who was celibate, who said, I would that all men were as I am, that is unmarried, like the Apostle Paul. We find fault with him if he says, one, because there's so much sexual immorality in the world, every man should have his own wife, every woman should have her own husband, and they should render to one another their conjugal duties. It is better for a man to marry than to burn with lust. We just sweep that under the rug. We say, no, that's that's for whenever you've reached the milestones that in generations past you would have reached at, let's say, 20 years old, even if it's not until you're 30 or 35 or 40, then we'll say you may marry. Only when you're able to leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife, and by that we don't mean multi-generational households like have been common throughout much of human history and were certainly common in biblical times. No, we mean not until you're able to buy your own house, get your own apartment, get your own vehicle, get your own everything, you're going to have to be a rock star. You're going to have to kill it. You're going to have to aim for the fences. And if you swing and you miss, we're going to mock you. We're going to pile on. We're going to say this is all your fault that you haven't risen to the occasion. We're going to say you're a perpetually adolescent young man. And then we're going to rationalize continuing to treat young men like boys perpetually, even while the women and the girls are related to as though everything they think, everything they do is quite correct, and they are just the victims. They are the victims of oppression from men in society. It's the patriarchy's fault. And of course we have to give them a leg up. Of course we have to give them a head start. It's partiality, and it's conformity to the pattern of this world. That instead of, like Peter, giving a six-to-one ratio of instruction to the women about being in subjection, having a quiet and gentle spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What's interesting there, when he says, which in God's sight is very precious, Peter, is not saying this is the cultural norm. Do you notice that? He's not saying, you know, this is cultural context. And so it's very precious in God's sight that we would do what seems right in our own eyes, or we would do what the rest of the culture around us is affirming and normalizing. Why doesn't he say that? Well, I think part of the reason why he doesn't say that is because that would be conforming longer to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. If he were to say it's precious in God's sight for you to just do what the culture around you is doing, adopt and embrace whatever the least mature person professing Christian faith who comes into your church thinks and believes and feels, have that be your baseline, your lowest common denominator, to not offend him to not correct him, to not say something that he would be offended by, puts us and all of our young men and all of our young women at risk of repeating over and over and over again in a multitude of ways the mistakes of Judges 14 and 15. 
Samson tells his parents, go get this woman for me to be a wife. Is she a good godly woman? Well, you're not allowed to talk about that. She could be. If you're a good godly man, she, she will be. Is it Samson's failing to be a good godly man, which we find any evidence in the text, causes his Philistine wife to sell him out, to betray him to her countrymen? No. No, but don't underestimate the ability of pandering, flattering hirelings to read that into the text, all the while patting themselves and one another on the back for being exegetes. But what's interesting is the very next passage or the very next section in the epistle of Peter, the first of the epistles of Peter in our New Testament, he talks about suffering for righteousness' sake. And he talks about having a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And why is that perhaps right after talking about wives and husbands? Well, I think part of the reason, part of the answer to that question may be that as soon as you start to talk in terms of wives submitting to their husbands or being subject to their husbands, men living with their wives in an understanding way, what can very easily crop up is a whole lot of excuse-making, a whole lot of objecting, a whole lot of, well, that's just not practical. Lots of very practical, pragmatic-type complaints and excuses. And so you start talking about this and you say, hey, you know, this is God's design for marriage. This is what he wants for marriage. And you're going to risk some people saying, this is divisive. It's divisive for you to say, Wives should be subject to their husbands. Husbands should live with their wives in an understanding way. You're going to have the men who want to make a bunch of excuses for why they're not being kind. They're not being gracious to their wives. You're also going to have a whole bunch of women, in our context at least, but I don't think it's particular to our context, making excuses for why they don't have to be subject, they don't have to submit to their own husbands. And in all of the back and forth, you'll have somebody, you'll have some jolly soul say, have unity of mind. Let's just not talk about any of this. You know, Peter says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. It takes humility to be told as a husband, I can speak from experience here, I'm not sure you're living with your wife in an understanding way. I'm not sure you're honoring your wife as the weaker vessel. That might be part of the reason why your relationship with God is strained right now. It's going to take humility to hear that and to internalize it long enough to assess where you could be doing a better job honoring God by loving your wife well. Now, not having ever been a woman, having no interest in being a woman, having no interest in being a wife, (laughs) having no experience being a wife, I observe, nevertheless, that when women are told, Submit, be subject in our context very often, not always. And God bless the women who embrace this. God bless them. I do believe Peter is telling us true. It's very precious in God's sight, which is to say it's probably not all that common. It's very precious because it's rare. Having a gentle and a quiet spirit, there's an imperishable beauty. As in, that beauty doesn't fade as you get older. You're still a beautiful woman as you get older when this is your attitude, when this is your mindset. That's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about an attitude, a mindset. 
a posture that women would have towards their husbands. But very often, what you find is the exact opposite of humility of mind. Instead of being humble and tenderhearted and sympathetic, most of us want to go to our corners and insist that we are quite correct. We want to do what is right in our own eyes. And if the culture is reinforcing that, if the culture around us is saying, you don't need no woman, you don't need no man, just go your own way, do your own thing, divorce happens, it's no big deal, separation, yeah, it's fine, you've got your own needs, your needs aren't being met, we need to be told by Peter, not just what it takes to have a marriage that is healthy and happy and pleasing to God, but we also need to be told by Peter that the idea, the goal is unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love. Have it, right? Have it even if you aren't that. You aren't unity of mind. Neither am I. Have unity of mind. What is that talking about? Does that mean you never have disagreements? No. You may disagree in the particulars. In fact, as a matter of fact, it wouldn't be possible for a wife to be subject to her husband, to be submissive to her husband, to be told is even to say, you need to be told, but it wouldn't be possible for her to submit to her husband and be subject to her husband if they always agreed on everything anyways. So what's being described with having unity of mind in the context of marriage, for instance, is you're going to keep the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? To please God, to honor God, to honor the other person, to love the other person well, to build them up, to edify them, In that, we expect to have a blessing. Verse 9, Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, which I think is like (laughs) the antidote to feminism and the men going their own way, posture 101. Or else, what is it? It's all these women who've built up in their minds that they're oppressed, and so they're going to give it as bad as they got it back to the men, and even worse— Oh, you can revile us for being women? We'll revile you right back even harder for being men. And vice versa. You have men now for decades being subjected to a lot of male bashing, a lot of denigration, a lot of disrespect, a lot of being torn down and discouraged. And what, apart from Christ, do they want to do? They want to revile the women right back. Oh, you think you hate men? We hate women even harder. We'll show you. No, Peter says, don't repay evil for evil. Is it an evil thing that they hated you? Well, then that's your clue that you should not be hating them right back. Was it them reviling you when it was, oh, you're a man, you wouldn't, blah, 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 blah. You don't, blah, 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 blah. Was that a bad thing that they were reviling you? It seems like it really bothers you and you're complaining about it. Now tell me whether you're reviling them right back. On the contrary, Peter says, bless. Ooh, bless. Okay, question. And this is a rhetorical question, but think about it. Is it not a blessing when a wife is subject to her own husband and respects him? Is it not a blessing to others around us when a woman has a gentle and quiet spirit and is beautiful? And by the way, there's an affirmation of beauty here. There's an imperishable beauty. There's an imperishable beauty that comes from the inside, the inner woman of the heart in having a gentle and quiet spirit. This is not a rejection of having external beauty either, by the way. Your adorning being external is to say, that's your focus. That's your emphasis. You know what? If you're a beautiful woman, there are lots of scriptures to refer to where that is a good thing 
That's a happy thing. We should be glad for it. Job's three daughters, by the way, at the end of the book of Job are said to be the most beautiful women in the land. This is part of how he is blessed that he has these beautiful daughters. It's a good thing. Esther is a beautiful woman. Actually, the phrasing in Esther 2.7 is that she had a beautiful figure, which is to say she had a beautiful body. And it says, Esther 2.7, she was lovely to look at. She's just, just pleasant to be around. There are plenty of passages that affirm the goodness of God's design with regards to feminine beauty. Peter is not rejecting those. He's not rewriting those. He's not turning them on their head to where you say, actually, it's a curse. Oh, this beauty is a curse. Oh, don't, don't be beautiful externally. No, 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 no. It's fine. Be beautiful externally. Don't be an awful, ugly person on the inside and think that you being beautiful on the outside makes up for it because it doesn't. And actually, oh, by the way, in due time, you're going to not be beautiful on the outside like you are. If you're beautiful right now, that's great. That's wonderful. It's not going to last forever. And when your beauty on the outside gives way to wrinkles and gray hair and sagging skin, and maybe you're not such hot stuff, you know what's going to keep you looking beautiful and being beautiful? Your attitude, your heart. We neglect this to our peril and to the peril of our homes, our churches, our communities. We neglect this. We downplay this. We get offended at this to our spiritual harm. Bless, bless. For to this you were called. You are called to bless others. What is in common when the woman says, well, I'm not going to be subject to my husband until he's meeting all my needs, until he always does everything right and never makes a mistake? Are you blessing or are you repaying evil for evil? Hmm? Even if you're right, even if you're right that he's not doing everything correct, are you blessing so that you may obtain a blessing or are you reviling for reviling? Anybody can do that. Tell me what's special about your Christianity when anybody and everybody does that. Husbands, you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to her. You actually exploit the fact that she's the weaker vessel to revile her right back when she doesn't please you, when she's no longer as young as she once was, when her hair turns gray, when she starts to get wrinkles, when she gets tired, when she gets grouchy, when she's not having an easy time or even being obedient either in being subject to you and being submissive to you like she's commanded to, and yet she claims to be a Christian. Oh, are you repaying evil for evil, reviling for reviling, or are you blessing her by you being obedient? Peter, not for no reason, I'm convinced, says what he says about suffering for righteousness sake right after this very difficult for us to embrace advice and counsel and direction to wives and husbands. And yet it's not all cost. And there is definitely an expectation of benefits you are told to be motivated by. It's good for you to expect that this is going to make your marriage better, healthier, stronger, your family, your household, happier. That's good. Bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing, as in God wants you to obtain a blessing by blessing. But as long as you're just like, oh, my needs aren't being met, you're being selfish. And you're not living up to what Christ has commanded you. Switching gears. Speaking of Emily Ratajkowski and speaking of young women on TikTok and out and about in the world who have certain 
ideas. They have certain attitudes. They've been brought up in the way they should not go. Most of them going to public schools here in America, which have purged Christian faith, any hint of Christian faith or Christian morality or Christian truth from their textbooks, from their curriculum, from their practice, from their habits. Matt Walsh has an opinion piece over at the Daily Wire. And oh, by the way, just a quick aside about Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh was the reason why I got into blogging, aside from encouragement from a couple of cousins of mine who helped kick off On the Rocks blog with me years ago. Matt Walsh was my role model. He was my hero. He still is. I I love Matt Walsh. I, I very much appreciate that he is saying the things that he's saying, doing the things that he's doing. I really, really respect and admire Matt Walsh and would love to meet him someday. Would love to shake his hand and talk with him someday. Congratulations and thank you, sir. <laughs> but he's got an opinion piece here at the Daily Wire, which I will not read for you because it's behind the paywall and you should definitely pay for the Daily Wire. That was a question that came up at our Ecclesia Forum last night. What are some news sources that you trust and would recommend? I'll say right here, I'll say it right now. I reference the Daily Wire on a constant basis because I think they do a really excellent job. I subscribed a few years back. So I pay because I want to support what it is that they're doing at the Daily Wire between reporting and commentary and engagement with culture. So you should definitely subscribe and you should read this opinion piece by Matt Walsh titled, Why the Most Powerful Forces in Society Want You to Be Single, Childless, and Selfish. You should definitely read this opinion piece by Matt Walsh. And you should do some soul searching about how are you influencing your family, your friends, your community? How are you influencing your church? Are you going along with this quietly, silently, acquiescing, affirming it, flattering it, trying to rationalize it, trying to spiritualize it? Are you being conformed to the pattern of this world? where these influential, manipulative people want you to be single, childless, selfish, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, where your God is your stomach? Are you just going with the flow? Any dead thing can go with the flow. Only a live fish can swim against the stream. Keep that in mind. But here you've got Matt Walsh saying what we all know to be true, but he's saying it like it's not a good thing. And that's because it's not a good thing. We don't find this being the prescription from the Apostle Paul or from Peter. Paul briefly says, I would that all men were as I am, that is, unmarried. But because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband. And then, oh, by the way, you don't just wait until somebody's been married for a couple of years, they're out of the honeymoon phase, they're starting to have marital problems, to tell them how it should be to encourage them, to teach them how to be wives who honor the Lord, how to be husbands who honor the Lord. You tell them on the front end as they're assessing and evaluating who it is that they would consider getting married to and how they're going to get started, how they're going to plan out their life together. You tell them on the front end when they're young, actually. You tell them all through their teen years, hey, this is what God's word says. Here's how you should orient yourself Here's who you should look for. Don't look for a Philistine woman, for instance, who's going to sell you out and humiliate you because 30 guys threatened to burn the house down around her and her father rather than lose a bet. In Matt Walsh's opinion piece, there is an embedded, no pun intended, although it is meant in multiple ways, there's an embedded video 
of Emrata, Emily Radajkowski. Josh Lekak says she has a personal net worth of at least $8 million. Here she is, beautiful young woman, explaining to her fans on TikTok the facts of life with regards to marriage and what is best in life. Here it is. Cut three. Take a listen. So it seems that a lot of ladies are getting divorced before they turn 30. And as someone who got married at 26, has been separated for a little over a year, 32, I have to tell you, I don't think there's anything better. If being in your 20s is the trenches, there is nothing better than being in your 30s, still being hot, maybe having a little bit of your own money, figuring out what you want to do with your life, everything, and having tried that married fantasy and realizing that it's maybe not all it's cracked up to be, and then you've got your whole life still ahead of you. Um, So for all of those people who are stressed or feeling stressed, about that, about being divorced, like it's a, it's, it's good. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> For what? For being selfish. For being your own selfish pig. That's what it is. As Proverbs eleven twenty two would say, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Emily Radakashit. I don't even know how to say her name. Rada Kachowski, Rada, Rada, and no wonder she goes by M. Rada. Emily, can I just call you Emily? You're a beautiful woman and you lack sense. This is silly. This is not a gentle and quiet spirit, obviously. And you're not a Christian, obviously. But listen, Christians, a lot of what we're tiptoeing around in the church, in our homes, as Christians in America, is residue of the seeker-friendly movement where we're saying, we're telling ourselves, hey, we've got these immature professing believers who come in and they have attitudes that they picked up (laughs) more readily from Emrata than they did from the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul or Jesus. And we don't want to offend them, all right? We want to focus on the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, good news. What's the good news? Well, that Christ is Lord. Christ is risen. Okay, and should we obey him? Well, you know, I I wouldn't put it that way, right? Let's emphasize that we love God. Yeah, but Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Yeah, but the commandments thing, you're going to lose a lot of people there, right? We don't want to actually command people to obey and to do what Christ told them to do. We just want them to think about it. Well, you lost me then. You lost me because I'm just going to think about how Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to hear these words of mine and put them into practice and build your house on the rock. You don't get any stability, any security in life when you build your house on the sand because you heard what Jesus said. Yeah, you thought about it and then you just did whatever you wanted to do. You don't get any of the benefits when the rains fall and the wind blows against that house, your house falls. And then if you turn that into, well, I'm suffering for righteousness sake. No, you're not. You're suffering for your stubbornness sake. You're experiencing the natural consequences of your sinful, foolish behavior. Congratulations? No, no congratulations. The only thing I can congratulate a woman who aspires to be Emrata on is being easy on the eyes. Beautiful, right? Beautiful. You're a beautiful woman. Great hair, beautiful face. As was said of Esther, 
you have a beautiful figure and you're lovely to look at and you don't fear God and you don't love other people. You're entirely self-absorbed, entirely selfish. And I actually profoundly pity you. You are the woman folly talking about bread eaten in secret, stolen bread, stolen water, eaten in secret, drink what you're going to drink in secret. Ooh, cause it's naughty, right? Yeah. It goes down to Sheol. Your house leads to Sheol, leads to the grave. The woman wisdom also invites people over, but she serves them her own food, her own mixed wine at her own table. And she teaches them the fear of the Lord and how to be wise, not to steal, but to build up, get your own, right? Get your own table, get your own livestock and your own mixed wine and your own house with seven pillars. I'll play for you, cut four here, and then I've got to run. Here is another embedded in, this one only in one sense, embedded in the opinion piece by Matt Walsh over at the Daily Wire. This is Mia Khalifa giving marriage advice to women. I'll play the audio for you and then I'll give you my conclusions. Oh, we're comparing stats. Baby girl doesn't know that I am Tom Brady at this game. Married at 18, divorced at 21. Second marriage. Married at 25, divorced at 28. Third engagement. Engaged at 29, ended it at 30, but I kept the ring. I'm still keeping Tom Brady on his toes. We should not be afraid to leave these men. We are not stuck with these people. Marriage is not a sanctimonious thing. It is, it is paperwork. It's something, it's, it's, it's a commitment you make to someone. But if you feel like you're not getting anything from that commitment and you're trying, you gotta go, you gotta go, you have to go. I know it's difficult to fill out paperwork and to make appointments and to do all of these things, but. But what, but what, but it's all about you, right? Right. Of course. Right. When this gets to be no big deal, normalized, rationalized, even spiritualized, if we just dress it up with some Christian language and we say we're going to focus on ministry and let's not observe differences between men and women because all are in Christ, right? Well, you can take that as far as the liberals want. If you so desire where they say that a man can be a woman trapped in a man's body, a woman can be a man trapped in a woman's body. When you say well, there's no distinction between male and female. All are in Christ, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. If you say there's no distinction whatsoever, well, then it's very confusing that Peter gives specific advice to wives and then gives different specific advice to husbands. It's a very curious thing that we get instructions on how to treat older men in the church and younger men, older women in the church and younger women in the church as fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, in all purity, as if there is any difference, as if there is a difference that is good in how you would relate to your mother and your father compared with how you would relate to your brother and your sister, as if there's a difference between how you would relate to your father compared with how you would relate to your mother, because one's a man, one's a woman. Well, I don't really like the tone here. I you know, feel like I feel like we should focus on the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Remember all the parts of the gospel where we teach disciples to obey all that Christ commanded. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Isn't that part of the gospel? Yes. No, maybe. Hmm. But perhaps I've said too much. I got to run more to be said 
in future. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.